Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. This week, PBS aired the latest masterpiece by filmmaker Ken Burns and his team. The three-part documentary, titled The U.S. and the Holocaust, examines America's response to one of the greatest humanitarian crises of the 20th century, the Shoah. My colleague, Laura Shaw Frank, AJC's Director of Contemporary Jewish Life, sat down with Mr. Burns and Lynn Novick for a behind-the-scenes look at this heartbreaking three-part series. Laura, the mic is yours. Today, I'm thrilled to speak with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick about their incredible new historical documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust. This documentary, which debuted Sunday on PBS and is streaming on PBS.org, tells a lesser-known story of the Holocaust, the story of how America reacted, or didn't react, to the Nazi genocide unfolding in Europe. This series is a must-watch. It tells in harrowing and riveting detail how the United States failed to indeed, in so many ways, actively chose not to intervene to save European Jewry in any meaningful way. The series is not only a critical addition to our understanding of the past, but it also brings forth sometimes uncomfortable, but absolutely necessary lessons for today. So welcome, Ken and Lynn. We're really honored to have you here on People of the Pod. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to ask you what led you to take on this project, which I understand has been in the works for many years. Well, yes, it has been in the works for many years and probably incubating for longer than that because we've been interested in this topic, which is America's response to the Holocaust for many years. We worked on a film on the Second World War and we sort of touched on the topic, but not as the major focus. And Ken and Jeff Ward made a beautiful film about the Roosevelt's series where the Holocaust came up. And in 2015, we were approached by the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington that they were planning an initiative and an exhibition that was several years ahead that would be called Americans on the Holocaust. And the Holocaust Museum in Washington had focused only on what happened in Europe, and now they wanted to dedicate themselves to having Americans understand our response to this event. And they asked if we would be interested in making a film that would explore the same questions. And we immediately said, yes, we, we have to do it. We had other projects already in the works, and so we started kind of slowly researching and collecting information, getting our arms around the topic. And lo and behold, finally, seven years later, the film has finally hit the airwaves. As you were researching, I'm curious if the story unfolded the way you thought it would. I mean, the Holocaust Museum obviously had done a lot of this research, and I know there are books that have been written on it, many of those books I've read. Did the story unfold the way you thought it would? Did anything surprise you as you were going through the research? I don't think we've ever had a film that we've worked on that we've known how it was going to unfold. I think part of our job is to assemble, to hunter-gather a lot of material, a lot of scholarship, a lot of interviews, a lot of footage, a lot of photographs, and sort of find in it a story. So for us, having, you know, we thought some knowledge of what took place in the Holocaust, this was new territory because we were reorienting the focus to see it through the U.S. lens, what we knew and when we knew it, what we did and what we didn't do, what we should have done. And I think that every day was a process of discovery and every day brought 
you know, small, tiny, quotidian things or seemingly quotidian things. And other times they were massive, huge. I had no idea. I mean, just to take an example of the latter, I would say I didn't fully understand the size and the scope of the Shoah by bullets. The period before the use of gas where two million Jews are sort of killed at point blank range into pits after the invasion of Poland and other countries in Eastern Europe, it was staggering. And then I think there are just little tiny moments where you learn the particular heroism of someone, a survivor or someone who did not survive or someone who tried to rescue people who desperately needed to get at. And I think the great frustration was watching our own country, which we have not consistently celebrated, but have had the occasion many, many times to celebrate both actions and individuals. Um, standing by, unable to really do anything because of rampant anti-Semitism, rampant anti-immigrant sentiment, xenophobia, nativism, racism. I mean, all the plus eugenics and the depression, and you've got a toxic brew, and, and none of those excuse it. I mean, we let in more than any other sovereign nation, but it's, you know, to me, if we brought in five times as many or 10 times as many, I think in some ways we still would have failed our obligation, our humanitarian obligation at that moment. And yet we understand the pressures and the politics and the sensibilities and, and the larger, bigger picture. Now, in retrospect, it's hard to think of anything larger than the Holocaust, but maybe winning World War II was something that trumped some other considerations. It's hard to take and hard to watch and hard to swallow. And so I think our film represents that, that, that kind of difficulty and painful information about oneself. Nobody likes to do that. Speaking of painful information about oneself, I wanted to touch for a minute, you know, American Jewish Committee is a storied American Jewish organization. And I wanted to touch for a minute on the struggles of American Jewish leaders to effectively sound the alarm or even make any difference in what was happening to European Jewry. As you depict in great detail, the American Jewish community was really not able to effectively advocate with FDR, with American government officials in general, for their co-religionists in Europe. And in fact, there's even a lot of disagreement in the American Jewish community about how or even whether to impact um, American policy. And I think, Ken, you just got at the reasons for a lot of that because of the toxic brew in American society at the time. American Jews were worried about speaking up. I noted a, a quote that Daniel Mendelssohn says in the documentary that a lot of American Jews were torn between wanting to ring the alarm and not seem too alarmist. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about what we can learn today from the story of the American Jewish community in this period, a community that wanted to speak out, couldn't speak out, wasn't sure whether to speak out, and in many ways, in the decades after the war, grappled with enormous guilt about not having been able to do more. It's a very important question. And first, we sort of want to posit that the American Jewish community, the American people are not responsible for the Holocaust, did not perpetrate it, did not commit this atrocity. So it's how we responded sets a very high bar for us as a society, as Ken was saying. But I'm not sure that the kind of guilt you're speaking about is really fair to inflict on ourselves as American Jews in particular, because of all the things Ken was just saying, you know, this was a very difficult situation for everybody. And they understood from what we've learned from working on the film, especially in the early years, 
how rampant anti-Semitism was and how Jews would be blamed for their own misfortune. And, you know, there were polls taken that people in America thought, well, you know, if Jews are being persecuted, they brought it on themselves. I mean, that's kind of shocking, but that was a pretty commonly held belief. And then you can fast forward a few years to hear Charles Lindbergh, a great American hero, gaining enormous popularity. He already had a lot of popularity, obviously, for his accomplishments as a pilot, et cetera. But speaking about, in sort of coded language, unseen forces controlling America, by which he means Jews, and people are applauding. So, you know, it's not to say that everybody in America is on board with that, but who understands that better than American Jews? So it's a tightrope they have to walk. And then on top of that, it's even just coming to terms with what is happening over there. Even if you have the information, is it really true? How bad is it? What does this mean? You know, reacting in real time and getting the public to react in real time and the government to react. I think it was an impossible situation. I find one of the most anguishing characters, people that we follow is Stephen Wise, the most famous rabbi in America. I didn't know that much about him. I'm embarrassed to say I'm familiar with him generally, but the weight of this on his shoulders and how he's trying to speak out, but kind of calibrate, you know, what to say and when to say it to get some kind of response and feeling like no matter what he does, it's not enough. That's an enormous weight for someone to bear. And none of this is his fault. I think it's an interesting thing. We, we do a real disservice to any group when we say that we expect them to all think alike, right? And there is the older Jews who had arrived in the 18th and 19th century, even before then, who felt a kind of protective sense of belonging to America and were kind of concerned about the influx of immigrants between 1870 and 1920. And so there's that separation. And then I think within the dynamics of the complicated political situation of the 30s, there's people who are conservative, like, let's not rock the boat, it's only gonna make it worse for our people in Germany. And the Germans are saying, do keep boycotting us. You'll see how bad it gets for your people. And if you look, you know, Kristallnacht is a response to a stateless Polish kid shooting a German diplomat in Paris. And that's the pretext for Kristallnacht. There are other things. The taking down of the Nazi flag on the SS Bremen in New York Harbor becomes the pretext for making the Nazi flag the official flag, the religious symbol of Nazism and of Germany. So there's plenty of evidence that if you're going to speak out, you're going to get, as Guy Stern said about his father's warning when the Nazis took over, if you stick out, you get stuck. So I think that there's an impulse among a lot of Jews in America just not to say anything. And the others who are, of course, outraged and feel that something has to be saying. And most of the advisors closest to President Roosevelt are of the former. And so you end up with a very complicated mix of reactions. And then, of course, nobody is yet fully aware of or prepared for the sheer extent of what we call the Holocaust. We are outraged by 33 at the mistreatment of Jews, but this is just an incremental step along the line that will lead to the decision to exterminate all the Jews of Europe as quickly as they can. I think that you've both captured the situation for American Jews so accurately. I've been teaching the Holocaust for many, many years, and one of the phrases I was taught I think by the Shoah Foundation to use is the phrase choiceless choices, that victims in the Holocaust, the choices that they were given were choices without a choice. They were both bad. And I would never, ever in a million years even try to compare the situation for American Jewish leaders, obviously, to the victims of the Holocaust. But in many ways, you've painted a picture of choiceless choices for them as well. 
I wanted to also talk about something that Deborah Lipstadt said. She had this line, this incredibly elegant, simple line that to me spoke volumes, which was, the time to stop a genocide is before it starts. And I see you're both nodding. This is a, a quote you probably have heard people mention a number of times. This is a line that cuts to the core of what it means to be a responsible individual, what it means to be a responsible society. But it's also a very complicated statement because how as a society are we to know that disaster is around the bend? And of course, we should always seek to eradicate injustice. We should always fight injustice and wrongdoing when we see it in our society. But I see in our society that, and and we saw this even in the Jews that we were just talking about, American Jews, this kind of tension between, am I being alarmist or should I be screaming at the top of my lungs? Or is there something in between? So how would you unpack what Deborah Lipstadt's saying? We don't unpack it. We just let Deborah say it because she gets it. And she would know better than any of us about the inherent contradictions and instability of something like that. You just don't know when, you know, the proverbial frog in the pot of water when you're getting boiled, right? And so it's, it's really hard to know when to act. I've sort of supplemented her since there's so many echoes to today by saying the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. So I think that we now have on the record, not just in the case of the Holocaust, but in many other places, and we have on the record, not just in the case of threats to American democracy, but democracy everywhere and authoritarian rule since the beginning of human time, that you really actually can't wait until you think the water is getting hot. You've really got to be active. I mean, in the Declaration, Thomas Jefferson, little known passage or little reflect upon, talks about how the human race is sort of disposed to suffer tyrannies. So that implies to me that this idea of self-government might in fact be this active thing, right? Like they say the TV washes over us and people actively read a book or actively play music or actively participate in sports. There's something active about a democracy. And what I think happens when that atrophies is that you begin to see that things like free and fair elections, the peaceful transfer of power, the independence of the judiciary, the ability of mob rule, the othering of other groups, whatever it might be, uh, to serve your end and your grievances or a way to make a very easy thing to blame immigrants, which is, you know, just the oldest page in the authoritarian playbook. So all of those are happening now and it's really, you know, time to ring the alarms. That's it, period. You know, and I'm not sure looking back at the 30s, you could say, well, that's got to be the time. You know, I I think Lynn and I, after having spent seven years doing this, could say, oh, yeah, well, it should have been right here. You know, we remove our ambassador. No other country does that. But when we push back, they also correctly remind us that we're doing the same thing to African-Americans. And in fact, they've based their laws in 35 on discriminatory laws against the Jews on our Jim Crow laws. So we've got a little clearing of the throat that takes place there. But certainly by Kristallnacht, everybody should be on complete and wide alert. And it's not. It's still, you know, as the developing tensions of the war that's imminent in Europe develop, people are saturated. Some countries are already saturated with immigrants, can't take anything more. And that's where I think the United States had a role to play, that we could have gone, you know what, we'll fill our quotas. We won't allow the State Department to deny visas for no reason 
whatsoever. That that and had we done that, we'd probably I think get in about five times as many people as the two hundred and twenty five thousand that we got in. I wanted to touch again on what you said about the time to save democracy is before it starts to die. Before it's um, lost. Before it's lost. It's hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube, right? It takes much, much longer to create a democracy than it is to save it before it goes. Absolutely. And I wanted to talk to you about your choice to end the documentary the way you did with footage from the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville and the January 6th insurrection. And you have this moment where you kind of pan in on that Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt that one of the insurrectionists wore. And those images really illustrate white supremacy and anti-Semitism, sort of the deep and continuous roots that they have, not only in European history, but also in American history. Deep and continuous. It's exactly the word and the, and the rationale for doing it. If we're going to set the table with these antecedents that we've described, if you've got thousands of Ku Klux Klaners in the 1920s marching on the Capitol, I don't think you can just leave this thing when LBJ changes the immigration law that suddenly eliminates or attempts to sort of replace the old pernicious Johnson Reed Act of 1924. Yeah, you have to sort of say all of these things are continuous. Absolutely. I wanted to also note that during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of those who are opposing sort of the pandemic mitigation measures like masks and vaccines used Holocaust analogies um, as if to claim somehow that wearing a mask was comparable to wearing a Jewish star on the Holocaust and, you know, shut down uh, shutdowns of, of schools or of, of uh, public society for a short time was, was like uh, being in a concentration camp, et cetera. It feels to me and and to many of us at AJC that there is an enormous amount of politicization and trivialization of the Holocaust that's going on right now. And they're both going on sort of simultaneously. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the impact that you think that that kind of politicization and trivialization might have on our society today in terms of our own toxic brew that we have. We just have to, I think, try to ground our understanding of it in history, what actually happened to real people, as Ken always says, to sort of try to take this opaque number of six million and give some humanity to, not give, restore the humanity to the people whose lives were erased and their culture was, the attempt was made to just obliterate this entire world. So it's not just life lost, it's a whole community and culture that's not monolithic either. So as best we can from what we do is to try to learn about the history and share it through the testimony of the people who lived through it. And to, I think, just having both an emotional and intellectual and a spiritual connection to these lives is one way to push back against the trivialization and the politicization of this event. And yet, you know, there's some of what's driving that is certainly some of the currents in our society, like you were just saying, the white supremacy and anti-Semitism and nativism, nationalism, I think actually is another word that needs to be thrown into the mix here. Patriotism is love of country and nationalism is really something different. And we're in a time when nationalism is resurgent and sort of challenging our sense of what it means to be civil society. And all of this is part of the same problem. In many ways, I feel that both of you just made such a powerful case for deepened education, civic education, and in fact, Holocaust education. I believe that your documentary is going to be accompanied by a student outreach program. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, we, as Sarah Botstein, our partner in making this film, talks about a lot 
We take enormous pride, actually, in the way that we go about creating educational materials for our films because that means that they live on in the classroom for years, if not generations. And because of what we're tackling in this film, we, it's even more important for all the reasons Ken was just saying. So there are lesson plans that are available right now for teachers at pbs.org. It's the Ken Burns classroom. And within that, there's a section on this film. I think there's six lesson plans that address some of the things we were talking about. The symbolism of the Statue of Liberty, media literacy, and a number of other kind of big picture questions that teachers can unpack. We really look forward to hearing feedback from teachers once this material gets really incorporated into what they're doing, both history and language arts, and a way to really push back against sort of denialism in a way, because it's what Ken was saying. You know, if you repeat a lie long enough, it becomes truth to some people. And that was a concern, right? As soon as World War II was over, that this history would be negated or erased or that it didn't happen. People would try to say that. And so, you know, this is another way we can help to just put the truth out there. Right now, only 23 states in the United States have mandatory Holocaust education. And we at AJC have been advocating and supporting bills that mandate Holocaust education. Do you think Holocaust education should be mandated in the United States? I think it's really important to understand one's history. I think it's super important to teach that history. I think history is the greatest teacher there is. If you don't know where you've been, you can't possibly know where you are and more important where you're going. And in the 20th century studies, I can't think of anything. The greatest cataclysm in human history is the Second World War. And embedded in that cataclysm is a thing we call the Holocaust. If we're not, don't even have just the rudimentary relationship to the events of the Holocaust, uh, we've done a huge disservice to our children and therefore to our posterity. I want to thank both of you, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, for joining us today on People of the Pod. Your documentary is an absolute must-see. I know I will return to it again and again. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. Thanks so much. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my conversation with Israeli-American actress Noah Tishby, Israel's first special envoy for combating anti-Semitism and the delegitimization of Israel. Hear why Noah doesn't view anti-Semitism as a problem to solve. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 